Hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. It is our first birthday. Oh, happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Yes, it has been one year of interviewing amazing people about this question of lifefulness. How can you live your life as though it is sacred? What would happen if you put the practices which you can learn from spiritual communities and did that just about living life? How can you go and secularize these ancient traditions in a way that is really inclusive? We've interviewed some amazing guests and for the first anniversary podcast, they're all coming back. No, that would be crazy and really unwieldy. In fact, what we're doing is that James and I are going to look back over the year and just reflect on what we've learned about each one of the six pillars of lifefulness. So, I'm going to get out of the way and give you me and James and our first birthday podcast. So, welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast. This is a special anniversary edition. I feel that I've suddenly gone into my uh, hello and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast voice. It's sort of like, as with all good anniversaries, we, we actually missed the date of our actual anniversary podcast, which was, I think maybe two weeks ago james so we're two whole weeks late yeah is that your fault or my fault i think it's probably my fault i'm gonna take the blame i've been moving <laughs> out and i could hardly remember anything it's a miracle i turned up today honestly i, I learned from my wife because it has been i've heard it from her often when i would say that she's in the wrong she'd go it's a dynamic and so instantly that just means that it's like, oh yeah, yeah, whatever's <laughs> happening, you're involved too. I'm like, what? Yeah. So I think we can dynamically both be late for something there. And uh, so for this one, we wanted to do a bit of a uh, look back over the year. It's a year where we, in fact, have had 62 podcasts, uh, James, which is, uh, yeah, what do you think that is? It is astonishing to me, honestly, when you said that number a little earlier, just before we started, that we've done 62 Life on Us podcasts. I was like, what? How is that possible? <laughs> that sounds like a huge amount. And during all the stuff that has happened over the past year, the fact that this has continued to be produced with top class guests, may I say, <laughs> every single week and more than once a week, actually. That's pretty impressive. I was quite proud of us. Yeah. Mainly of you. The, uh, no, it is. It's one of those things you can always go and get into your uh, head a bit of like, oh, God, uh, it should be this or it should be that. At least I can. I uh, will uh, often find myself preaching the uh, total uh, gratitude for life. But when I look at my own outputs, I will uh, occasionally be my own uh, harshest critic. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's nuts. Obviously, it's not nuts to the listener. Listeners have uh, heard podcasts which have gone on this uh, long before. But I'm going to say, just in the making of one, uh, it, it sometimes really does feel uh, yeah. like uh, it, uh, it just is relentless in that really fun way that things are relentless. You know, when people talk about something which is really fun, like, how's your day out? It was relentless. Yeah, it's been really wonderful. So we want to do a bit of a sort of, uh, you know, a look back. Uh, but what do they go and call that, James? I've gone and... Uh, a retrospective. Uh, maybe it's a retrospective. For? Yeah, I think that might be. Might, that, or if not, another word. But that one certainly uh, fits the bill. And uh, to go and, like, reflect on what we've learned and uh, the different speakers, the uh, different interviewees, and to go and reflect on what we're building, which is this uh, lifefulness practice. Uh, and yeah, maybe if we just start there on the sort of big topic of lifefulness, which if this is your first podcast, or you just haven't been listening uh, that much to <laughs> yeah, previous not podcasts. not any attention at all. Uh, it is the idea of trying to do for congregation what mindfulness did for meditation, take something which had previously been seen as exclusively religious and show that it can be done in a way that everyone can be included, everyone can take part, no matter what their religion is. And yeah, what have you learned about like lifefulness as a whole, like this whole idea, James? I think a couple of things I've learned is that firstly, this is a bigger 
and more complex idea than I think I appreciated when we first started in the sense that it can go in so many different directions. Like looking over the 62 podcasts we've done, I'm astonished by the range of people we've spoken to in all sorts of different pursuits, different areas of work, different goals, people who have just got started doing what they're doing, people who've been doing it for ages with very different interests, but there is a core there that kind of comes through in the consistency throughout all the difference. And so I guess the, the two things I've learned is it's a, a very potentially diverse and multifaceted concept, but there is a core there about appreciating life and digging into life for what it really is that I think comes out through everything. I know that's a very amorphous idea, but it's uh, it kind of came out to me when I was looking over who we've spoken to. Yeah, and I said, well, that I take that as uh, a compliment because I also know that when we started this, part of it was to for you like uh, this uh, exploring the idea together, and because you are a man of uh, rigorous mind and you've you've gone and read everything which is worth reading, or at least in my sort of uh, view of things, and yeah, it's that's something I've also taken is just really like realizing that. It almost, you know, it, it has a lot of similarities to, you know, I don't want to say religious thinking, but it, but it clearly does, because that's what we talk about a lot. Uh, but then it also goes and lends from all of these different areas. And that if you want to go and speak about this, you it does give you a way in and also a need to go and look at all different aspects of life. Like you couldn't sort of go and uh, explore what lifefulness is and like how to live life as fully as possible unless you go and think about relationships, unless you go and think about like the real, like some specific things of how to make friends as an adult. That yeah. is also included. And so is what is systems thinking and how does that uh, go and influence and what's the connection between the meaning crisis and how we make meaning and the fact that we don't have friends as an adult. Like it really does uh, legitimately go and cross those different areas and I think add something new to it as well because you know there's a reason that those uh, that we're speaking to those different people just connecting the very big to the very small the very general the kind of theories the idea sets that we use to try and make sense of our experience in a big picture way with really practical everyday tips about how to get through life that's very interesting to me. And it certainly came out when I looked over who we've spoken to, that there are people who take the biggest picture perspective possible. And there are other people who have a particular focus who are really like, I, I also thought about how to make friends as an adult, right? Because it's so, it was such a conversation close to something that I am dealing with that I have a challenge with that really helped me think about it in a new way and very very specific but then there's also the conversations where we try and help people reframe how they think about some massive area of life and that's both part of the art of living it has to be particular and it has to be general wasn't that profound yeah that was great and I suppose it as we go and sort of reflect on it in different ways I was just wondering if there's something about the guests which you see as commonalities between them uh, I'd say that one thing that I probably thought this before but <laughs> guess what my confirmations have been uh sort of uh, affirmed as your we've biases gone on. have been confirmed what a weird what a weird situation the first time that's happened ever but it is that there are a load of people who are not religious in uh, any conventional sense and certainly wouldn't identify with that word. I'm thinking of someone like Lennon Flowers, who was way at the start on the Dinner Party podcast. And it's actually taken a while for her to realize that her work could be interpreted as spiritual when she came from it from a totally non-religious place. But then on the most recent podcast, speaking to uh, Rosie Sherry, the community builder, who 
is homeschooling her children, has decided to totally go in her own way, has dedicated her life to building community, is uh, realised that she doesn't want to live by the world's values. And I was, and I was like, yeah, that's super religious and in inverted commas yes. choices that you're making, that there are people who are you know, living uh, out their values in ways which have all the hallmarks of religious or spiritual behavior, but don't necessarily have the that label. And I think it, it can be helpful to go and have that lens because it goes and uh, it goes and gives you new tools to go and do you in a sort of more structured way. There's the Dolly Parton quote, quote, find out who you are and then do it on purpose. It's like, oh, I can now do more of these things that I was doing accidentally. I think that's the thing that kept coming back. I, I sometimes don't love the word intentionality, living with intention. Oh, yeah. There's something it's, it's, a bit new agey about it for me. But if I could identify one thing that I think connects all our guests is that they have some explicit ideas about how at least they want to live. And some of them how they think more people should want to live that they are trying to live into. They're not just going through life, bouncing like a pinball off the buffer. They have an idea about how they want to live and they are going for that idea. And that sense of intent, there's a lot of different ideas and some of them probably actually not compatible with each other in certain ways. You probably couldn't live like one guest and like another guest at the same time. But there's an intentionality and in the in the language of lifefulness that that's their ultimate meaning right they've got something they're going towards purposefully that they've articulated in the language that makes sense to them and that they want to share with other people that's something i see in all of our guests yeah and what you just said there reminded me of uh uh, uh something that a friend of mine who was taking me to their synagogue said, and it was a reform rabbi who was talking about how, you know, they really disagree with lots of uh, more traditional rabbis who then disagree with the Orthodox rabbis. And he used this analogy of the talit, the prayer shawl, and said that uh, the Jewish people have been protected by the talit because everyone's pulling it in different directions, which is what keeps it taught. And uh, and it's just it's a, a nice idea of sort of being able to say that actually, you know, we can can go and accommodate these different voices and it makes us stronger. Uh, and so, yeah, now I wanted to sort of go through that thing to see, like, go and help us reflect on what we've learned. Uh, and then also, hopefully, for the listener to also reflect on some things that they've learned. So as you're going along at home, go and have a think about this. We're going to go through the six pillars of lifefulness, and that is ultimate meaning. So, you know, our translation of God, the divine, the spirit, uh, then celebration and contemplation, the translation of worship, uh, community life does what it says on the tin, uh, then personal growth, becoming the person that you want to be, living the good life. Uh, I mean, not living the good life as in fine wine, women and song, uh, but that might be. But that that would, might be it for you, right? That does sound pretty good. Uh, and then uh, uh, the fifth one, which is serving others. And the last one, uh, it was originally changing the world, translation of uh, uh, evangelism. evangelism. At the moment, we can go into it more. I'm thinking speaking your truth is might be uh, a better version of it. So ultimate meaning. Uh, James, what have you reflected on this idea of what ultimate meaning is? Well, part of it is an extension of what I was just saying about the diversity of our guests in terms of the goals that they're pursuing in life, but the commonality that they have a clearly articulated goal. And I we've discussed before, Sanderson, about how sometimes I'm skeptical about the idea that people dedicate their life to one big idea. I think life is multiple and various, and we can have multiple purposes. But having said that, there is something very compelling about speaking with these people who are alive with a particular idea and who use that as their sort of guide star. And it, 
it has challenged me to think more about what my ultimate meaning might be, about how I might express it, even if it might not be the same from day to day, thinking, what am I dedicating myself to? What, why do I really do the work that I do? Like, what is the thing I'm trying to get to? And I'm not sure I quite yet have the answer to that question, but I would like to have it. I feel like I'd like to be a guest on the Lifefulness podcast and be able to say, you know, in a cute way, what my ultimate meaning is. Um, and so I, I think I've just been drawn towards the energy that the ultimate meaning that our guests have seems to provide them. So I guess that's what I've got out of it. I suppose for me, I've really been sort of taken by this idea of God as a metaphor. And there has been language and ideas constructed around a human feeling, around a connection of ideas, which we have translated as ultimate meaning, the divine, you know, finding the thing which is most important to you. And I'm really fascinated by what that gives you and how it is something which is you know, an abstract idea, but then something which guides your life, but then also a set of neurochemical reactions. It's a process which is held between people. It's part of an ancient tradition. It's the feeling that you get when you look at the stars, but also hold your baby and also stand next to a waterfall. Uh, but it's the also this word which means I will be willing to lay down my life for that. It's going to be the thing which makes me stand up to the Nazis and go and get burned to the stake. You're like, oh, there's there's something in this idea, which is like that ultimate meaning, you know, that you're talking about, which, you know, you want to have something which you're willing to stand up to the Nazis about. And, you know, I don't know, burnt on the stake. That's not something we're so into nowadays. But there's, and so there's something which I feel that in life I've got I've got that thing. For me, when I say use the word life, that's what it means. But then going back to what you said, James, a thing which I've really been reflecting on in all of our interviews is about the uh, uselessness of language <laughs> in really getting close to this idea. And so when you were saying, oh, well, yeah, I don't quite have that idea or I've got so many different things. What I quite like about the concept of God is that it is actually beyond language in a way. Like people can spend loads of time trying to find it. Like if whoever's listening to this, you've got your values. It's like adventurousness, but it's also more than that. And it's uh, and there, it, there comes a time where there is a part of us which is beyond words. And there's something about these practices liberating ourselves from words and liberating ourselves from definitions, which is something I'm really interested in. And I didn't um, really think about as much before. The language is a lie in, uh, in some of this work. It's interesting that one of the things that I've learned from you, Sanderson, I like it when you do this in our interviews, Sometimes you'll notice that one of our guests is getting particularly physically animated, or their face kind of lights up, and you note that as a moment when they're really kind of vibing with their mm. ultimate meaning, right? And, and I think that that's a good way of articulating or kind of determining when you're close to the things which give you most energy, that they do fill your whole body in a way that other ideas or pursuits do not and i think that that's a good tip that it, it isn't always linguistic as you've said it's kind of about how do these ideas or these practices make you feel and what and what, yeah you will, it will even that the words you put on them like the words describe the feelings like you know that little yes. word is this you know you've went and put the word orgasm on an orgasm well you know that, <laughs> that word doesn't really cover much of that idea right let's go to a gig if you haven't been to a gig you're not really going to get what a gig is like that they are so flimsy and you know they're not dead letters but like in this sort of area they are you know that it's these physical in uh, processes which we're undergoing and then at the end you've got this this little word which is meant to signify it well this... that's interesting because it, what, what you're articulating there is a, a tension that exists in a lot of philosophy particularly mm. philosophy of religion and theology about language 
is a tool to express our, our feelings, our thoughts, but an imperfect one. It's a kind of symbolic tool that we try and use to communicate what we experience to other people who ultimately can never exactly experience what we are experiencing. So there's always a disconnect. And I think that periodically there are movements within philosophy and within religious traditions to get away from the language that has built up to describe sets of experiences and back to the experience itself. Mm. Like I see kind of transcendentalism as kind of like that as a almost secular way of saying it's, we, we like, particularly philosophers like me, we like to get into the linguistic analysis of experience and then we can get to a point where all we're analyzing is other people's words. And we've kind of disconnected to some degree from the, the experience which gave us the initial impetus to care about what that was being said. So I appreciate that. I think that's a good, it's a good tension. Mm. And so, and so then that gets onto uh, lifefulness pillar number two, which is now celebration and contemplation. Uh, this is a translation for worship. At the start of the year, it was just celebration, and uh, I don't. I, this was, I think, something I spoke about in doing this work. What have you learned about worship, celebration, and contemplation over the course of our interviews? I think I've learned that you really do need structured practices, at least as part of it. That mm -hmm. I, Again, I'm hesitant. I don't like to meditate. I don't like to do things all together in groups, except chanting and singing. Do that all day. Um, but... <laughs> By the way, I just I love it. You went, I don't really like any practices uh, except chanting and singing, which I can do all day. And it's quite interesting that you don't yeah. think of that as a no, practice right. because it's so natural. Right. But it is. I, it's actually surprising to me how much I have realized, because obviously I haven't sung in a chorus, which is something I did all through my youth and uh, into adulthood with really good choruses. And I haven't sung with one in eight, more than 18 months now because it's just not safe and how much that has drained my spirit frankly not having that regular practice which was obviously for me a a celebratory a contemplative a spiritual practice a regular way of connecting with something that was incredibly important to me um that i've lost access to in a great and how how much of a detriment that has been to my mental and physical health, frankly. And so I've been thinking a lot about that and other ways that I can do practices that just don't make me feel like I'm doing something too traditionally religious. So I get that ick factor that I sometimes get with some of this stuff. <laughs> I always love how you get your religious ick factor. And you just go, we can't always just take lessons from religion as you are a vicar and get I people know. to sing songs. And I find that hilarious when you run into the ick factor, which is inherent in all of your work. I know. Uh, if I'm you look at it as a certain being. It's very funny. Uh, and... <laughs> I'm glad you fucked him. <laughs> I think it was the interviews with religious people that have probably taught me the most in this, but I think that's because they do this in a far more structured way. Like this isn't something which just happens accidentally, like Zoe Cormier, uh, she's speaking about music and how much she loved music and how you could just tell music was central to her life. It was this driving force. It was enlivening force. It was where she got her juice, her vibe. And, and yet it, didn't necessarily strike her as something which was a practice, though she practiced it regularly. And I think the interviews with Kai Whiting and Tez Ilyas, uh, who, uh, Kai, Stoic philosopher, who then converted to Islam, uh, having heard the call to prayer, and uh, Tez, uh, Islam straight from the get-go, into it, loves it, keeps on doing it. But that just really listening about how how much it is a part of their day. I'm I'm fascinated by like what would it look like if I meditated five times a day, no matter what, and it was just a part of my life. Like that level of uh, commitment and uh, sort of devotion, I'm, I'm I'm sure would really bring so much. Sounds quite a lot though. 
I, I, it does sound like a lot, and it makes me think. I, I have a suspicion that there are practices I could do that would dramatically increase my quality of life. I'm thinking, for instance, that when I was in university, I used to, as well as singing all the time in choirs, whenever I had an exam, I would find a practice room and I would sing for half an hour, an hour beforehand to get me in the right mental space. In fact, once, uh, uh, during, just before a philosophy final, I got so into my singing that I arrived 45 minutes late to the final. And, they, and my professor had sent out people to find me because you can't reset a final at Cambridge. If you miss, if you miss it, you just get zero. Um, I, I got a start first and the highest mark in the university in that, that exam, actually. But uh, it was quite a wonderful experience. But I was very late. The regular, I knew that doing that with my body as a conscious practice would put me into a mental state and a physical state that would enable me to have a better experience of what I was going into. And I feel like if I just sang for half an hour every morning, I would have such a better life. I know that's true, but I don't do it. Why do I not do it? That is, that is something that has baffled me. And I think there are a lot of things like that, that I just, I know that it would improve my life to do it regularly, but I do not do it. This seems like uh, something that we should definitely uh, speak about more, <laughs> speak about more. And then that's maybe looking to the year ahead. So then that brings us on to community life uh the third part of it we've interviewed a lot of community builders james which were the community builders which have really stuck with you oh i thought that is not fair because because now i have to pick from all these amazing people that's I mean, fine already mentioned lennon we love flowers. them all so you uh, you mentioned lennon flowers so she's at the top of my mind right now and i just thought her idea of community grief dinners, essentially. If you haven't listened to that podcast, go, go and listen to it. But it's a, getting people together to eat and talk about loss was so simple and so doable. It's something that anyone can participate in and yet so necessary for so many adults in particular who are bereaved and have nowhere to turn to process those feelings. It really moved me to hear about that practice. I thought that that was a simple, brilliant way to help people at a really particularly difficult time of their lives. So I really thought that was fantastic. I think I my mind is doing one of the cognitive biases where you remember the first and the last thing more than the ones in the middle. So if you were interviewed in number 30 or so, uh, podcasts, I'm, you might not be top of mind, because now I'm really thinking about Daisha Kennedy, who we interviewed right at the start, and she was a finance coach. But again, uh, she did it, she built a community around her advice. And her advice was specifically for millennial black women, because she thought that they got really bad financial advice. And they were a community that was really underserved. And the story was so inspiring about how she had been in uh, financial trouble. And yet, uh, I also found that her advice was uh, really useful. And she was just like, really, just a really wonderful person to go and speak to. She did still have these, like it wasn't, we didn't just speak to her about her financial advice. She also spoke about how she did grounding this, you know, practice where she went out and sort of uh, wandered around in her, uh, in her bare feet in her garden. And yeah, these little sort of uh, little moments, little different practices that people have got up their sleeves that sometimes things they don't even think about so much. Uh, yeah, she was, she was wonderful. Have, have what's changed in your thought around community life? Again, it, it's made me think a lot about some of the things we do at the Ethical Society, my congregation, about how we could do them better. It's actually partly what spurred us to do a kind of top-to-tail review of everything that we do, all our programming, to see how we can bring people into community more consciously. Because mm. one of the things we found when we looked at our programs is that we, we had this idea that we wanted to help people learn something every time they came. 
connect them with other people and inspire them to live better. Mm. And Casper Kyle, one of our other guests, has a great three word statement for that, which he's so good at coming up with these things. I'm so jealous of people who, who have a mind that can do this. But it's, I'm going to forget it, but it's belonging, belonging becoming, becoming beyond, mm. which I love. It's three great, great statements. So that's exactly what we came up with as our goals. But we figured out that we were really falling down on the belonging piece because we sort of assumed the community would grow organically, that you just get people into the same place to experience the same thing. And then you have a community. But I think, you know, Sanderson, that's not true. You actually have to consciously connect people with each other to enable them to make some organic community building will happen. But for many people, that's quite difficult. And many of our target audience, people who are not traditionally religious anymore, or some who have never have been, they don't have the habit of joining a congregational community like ours and making those connections. So one of the things I've learned from our community builders on the podcast is to be more conscious in structuring how to connect people with other people. So the fourth pillar of lifefulness is personal growth, becoming the person that you want to be. Uh, I, you know, we've spoken to so many people who have got all these different things. I know, like Chris Stedman, uh, his interview about, uh, you know, trying to find meaning in on life, uh, online communities and not seeing the digital world as something which is inherently uh, less valuable. Uh, there was, I think, uh, some wonderful company, Gabia Tolakite, uh, neurology of neuroscience of change that was great shamash aladina about acceptance and commitment therapy oh there are so many people i guess this is going to be a bit of a cop-out i think it is something which is like about taking it in totality it's about regularly having these conversations. And obviously in our line of work, this is stuff we're thinking about a lot anyway, but you know, just having that thing to go and, you know, have an expert in front of you and be like, okay, I'm going to go and speak to Michelle Elman about boundaries. Now I'm going to go and reflect on my own boundaries in a conversation with an expert. Uh, you know, I'm going to go and speak to Fred dust about how to have conversations or, you have Laura Willoughby, who's the head of Club Soda, the largest uh, mindful drinking organization in the UK and speak to her about drinking less. And so I'd say it is that like continuous concentration on things which you I hope are edifying and which will help me do more of the things which I want to do, though, even as I say that, I'd say one thing which has landed is that it isn't often more it's not personal growth both casper to kyle and jonathan rosen have said this and one other person that it is also about you know reducing and thinking about like how can i have less how can i go and detach myself from things so maybe it's even this language of personal growth isn't the right language I think that what you've just said there has helped me understand one of the things that I've, I hope have developed a little bit. I haven't always agreed with everything that our guests have said, right? So occasionally a guest will say something, I'm like, I don't think that's right. Or, you know, I'm not sure that's, that's, there's a lot of good evidence for that. And I tend to be very, particularly in the area of spirituality, pretty skeptical. Because what I've learned from having these conversations is that one of my core commitments is not being fooled by someone else, right? I, I just don't want someone to kind of scam me, basically. And so but, but what, I, what I've learned from having conversations with a lot of these people who sometimes advance ideas that set off some alarm bells in me is that actually it's not inherently dangerous just to listen to the idea <laughs> and that a proximity to it is not toxic. It's just, it's helping me de 
there's a word for a technical psychological word that I can't rem remember exactly right now, but but kind of desensitize myself to that sort of stimulus so that I can see more of the good in it. And I think that's good growth. I'm still not going to join Scientology or anything, but I, I still th I think it's good to be able to, and it's something I'm learning from you, actually, Sanus, and you have a very open and positive approach to a lot of different things, even when I know that you probably disagree with some of them. And I've, I think that I have this sense that somehow bad ideas are contaminating, and I'm trying to get rid of that idea and be a bit less reactive. That's the word I was looking for. And that's something that I've got out of these conversations. Yeah, well, I think that's, uh, thank you very much for saying that. That's something which I really, I don't know if I've tried to develop it, but I know it's certainly know it's something that I've developed that, yeah, so many folk, like if you instantly shut yourself down at that first idea that you disagree with, because, uh, you know, that's very close to the secret or manifesting or science, maybe not Scientology, but, you know, let's say like acupuncture or whatever else it might be that oh, I'm, I'm just going to switch off now because th that idea is a, uh, it's a turd in the swimming pool. It's not a, it's not a coconut quality street. <laughs> and, you know, a turd in the swimming pool you know, the swimming pool is no longer uh, enjoyable. A coconut quality street, it, you can get, you can enjoy the rest of the quality streets. You know, you can eat that. that you can is eat the around lovely them. metaphor. <laughs> and I, I think that it's the podcast has actually helped me the process of recording it in interacting with these ideas outside of the podcast too. There are some um, a community of people that I'm speaking with regularly who are doing similar work in the in the USA to mine. And some of them, we had a conversation recently about Tony Robbins, the self-empowerment mm. guru, the super tall guy, you know, he does these walk on fire workshops. And I'm always like, what a hack, you know, that's my immediate honest reaction is what bullshit. Like mm. that is just making a ton of money out of telling people they can do anything. And I don't want anything to do with it. But some of these people that I really respect say, actually, no, he's helped a lot of people. I don't agree with everything he says, but there's something in it. And I'm finding myself more able to be like, oh, maybe there's something to learn here than I think I would have been before doing this process of, of recording the podcast. So that's some personal growth for me, I hope. Now someone will write and be like, no, you're not, James, you're rubbish. <laughs> Tune me out on Facebook recently for saying that astrology might be good in some ways, and then I'll have to eat my words. <laughs> I have been to Tony Robbins uh, sort of uh, activities before. They are great, but you are permanently, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of coconut, uh, uh, coconut quality streets there. <laughs> amid, I mean, he's also just amazing at what he does and he's absolutely massive. And uh, he's uh, occasionally got good jokes, including when and he's, he's so big he goes, you know how I got to be six foot seven? Personal growth. <laughs> oh, that is a good joke yeah it's, it's, it's funny uh so we're now moving on to number five and that is serving others uh you know the idea of ministry what have you learned i suppose about serving others in your own life but also about the idea of ministry uh, what have uh, what have you been taught well you already spoke about tez Ilyas and our conversation about islam with him and I think that will be a really valuable conversation for many people who don't, particularly people who don't really know anything about Muslims and about Islam, of which there are many, many people. I mean, I live in the United States. There are actually very few Muslims by percentage of the population in the United States. Last time I checked, it was around 3%, which, is, which means that many people in the USA live in areas where they will never encounter a Muslim around where they live in their everyday life. It would be a very unusual experience. And he spoke a lot, I recall, about the ethic of service that's at the heart mm. of Islam. And that, I think, is really important to remember. It's something that I've seen in my interactions with the Muslim community here in St. Louis, is that they are some of the best at motivating their congregations to be of service 
to other communities. And I, I'm even getting to the point where I'm a bit competitive about it. Like when, so we've recently had a, a large group of, of refugees from Afghanistan coming to move into the city and we're collecting stuff for them, pots and pans and food and clothes and everything. And I'm like, we, we need to be as good as the Muslim communities at this. This is really important. <laughs> we, we, can't, we can't let them own service. That's not allowed. Um, Very glad that you've so taken something that really uh, positive and turned it into a zero-sum yeah, competition. Right. Turned it into a competition. <laughs> definitely what the, that's definitely the main, uh, main thing behind that idea. Uh, <laughs> And this is something I'm going to say that I've noticed probably in a lot of our interviews is that people who are from a religious background, they will have a deeper training in this stuff in a way, or the expectations are set. Uh, I can think of the interview with Rich Watkins when he just said, talked about how he learned to be of service and he learned how to be in community in this case, but that's actually turning up to a community is service you know your presence uh is a present uh, i don't he didn't say that i just said it for the first time it's a, it's a bit wank uh but uh <laughs> the uh yeah and and then also i'm gonna say liz oldfield in uh right at the start when she spoke about you know the acts of generosity which came about inside her community and so again that is i guess pointing to what happens when something isn't just an idea like that you sort of sort of feel you should do but starts to become a practice which is lived in a community and you just go and change what's possible or change the expectations of yourself and it's you know really doing something intentionally and there being ideas and traditions and practices around it that's something that I want to kind of speak up for some of the more philosophical guests as well, because one of the things that these conversations has encouraged me to think of is the many different ways people are of service to a community, because it's not just personal growth and helping people with their problems, but it can be helping people reframe how they think about life and about things that are going on. So I'm, we had a particularly excellent brace of guests in Jonathan Rawson and then John Viviki the next week, who both are quite systemic in their way of thinking about life and both quite big picture and philosophical but they sound me, like they have eaten all the thesauruses and then just had <laughs> a, a dictionary for pudding you right, are... only ever eat spaghettios yeah 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 the, it is in abstractions i yeah uh, but that's like a kind of service too, like helping people think more clearly about the circumstances we're in. I think that's really valuable. I also would love to maybe not hear them because I don't want to make this joke about specific people, but certainly people like them do dirty talk. That would be my thing about, the, you know, or what would, how would it be expressed? Normally the language is so crude, so short. Uh, so brutal, but I just do not think, uh, you know, a uh, a person like uh, Viveki or Rosen, but not those guys, those guys I'm sure are great at it if they want to be great at it. I don't know how you can do inclusive chat while speculating about people's dirty talk, but I just want to, uh, there's <laughs> got to be a site where I can find out philosophers doing dirty talk. That's I, I it. think that they probably do it better than anyone. I'm I'm allowed <laughs> to just think of it. Okay. Well, I th I'm, we're going to leave that in. Those clearly one of the things that should be edited Don't out. cut that. <laughs> and then Maps. the last one is uh, our translation of evangelism, which is, which had before is changing the world, but I now think is, for me, speaking your truth is where I feel more comfortable uh, thinking about it because it is part of it is about you know, th this idea of the world becoming as you think it should be. And so that's this like creating the kingdom of heaven on earth, creating the Ummah, you know, the caliphate, whatever it is, that world where things have become, uh, things have become th this society where people are living right, where they're treated right, where, you know, it's often got a spiritual idea, but it, it comes to this thing of like, you want other people to join your team so that the world is yes, yes. better. Uh, 
And I guess for me, I've really been reflecting on the part which is about communication and it's not just making the world, uh, the world becoming a better place, but it's actually about raising your voice because there's something in communicating. There's something in telling a story maybe that people don't want to hear. There's something that is about saying it in public or say, uh, bringing it up, which is personally transformative. You know, it's you expressing yourself and the act of, in order to do that, you need to have changed and you need to have sort of courage and you need to have a whole load of skills. So that's something which, uh, and I don't really know who's the person that's made me think that. Oh, no, it'll come to me. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that I hadn't thought of this particular guest in that that light before until you started describing it in this way, like speaking your truth. I think it's a really good way of thinking about um, this particular guest who is one of my favorite guests and who I thought was so fascinating that we had him speak at the Ethical Society. But Jules Evans talking about conspirituality, the, the conjoinment of conspiracy thinking and spirituality, and particularly the way he spoke about it, both on the podcast and when he came to visit our community to speak to our community about it, the sense of, of urgency and passion he had about this topic that started for him as a post on Medium, right? Like a blog post, basically, about mm. what he was seeing happening in real time in the world and a way of thinking about that and how he wanted people to understand what was happening and how dangerous it is. It, it really impacted me. It was, it, it felt like a very important clarification of something that's happening in the world right now that is quite mm. dangerous. And it's not always a sort of truth that people like to share because it's not happy and upbeat, but it really felt to me like Jules Evans was sharing a truth that he felt needed to get out there. And that's the sense I got from that interview, definitely. And I suppose that goes in a way, back to the the mission part of this is a reason that we're talking about this. We're often quite British about it. You might be uh, thinking of this. No, 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 you guys toot your horns. Quite often, it's very clear that you believe in this. Uh, don't worry, we get the message that this is uh, this is your jam. Uh, that being said, it you know this topic is like is important. It is urgent. There's something about the reimagining, re-inhabiting these structures that were sort of maybe first demonstrated by religions, uh, even though there's, so, you know, we're building secular expressions of them, there have been other secular expressions of them, but this uh, reimagining the deep code is people sort of speak about this, the thinking about like how communities form, how we treat each other, the world as it should be, like, yeah, that has always been a religious uh, sort of question, but you know, I'm not religious. You're not religious. We need to do the world isn't religious anymore. It needs to be done in a way that uh, matches the world as it is, but can also include people who are, you know, who might believe. At least that's what I think. And yeah, that that mission to you know tr go and try to you know create give people this translation, this way of looking at their lives. Uh, is something which, you know, these conversations of, guess what, have, have affirmed that it's very fucking important. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think uh, I'm looking back over all the interviews we've done and the conversations that we've had together. And honestly, I'm really proud of it. Like, this is a really fascinating, extremely diverse, somewhat unusual collection of people, each of whom has a unique voice but a passionate voice there's not one of these conversations that i don't have some vivid recollection of some feeling that this person was connecting with something very very important to them and i don't think you can say that about many podcasts mm. so let's toot that horn yeah toot 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 uh though there's one thing which i don't want to end on a downer. I would like to diversify. We've I, 
uh, I sometimes don't, you know, maybe have as many options for guests at any one given time. And so uh, it can occasionally get a little white. I think we're good on sort of gender diversity. I think we're good on other forms of diversity. I think that's something which I'd like to improve in the new year. Though uh, I'm going to just say right now, as an ADHD person, anything involving organization is a real effing nightmare for me. Uh, but it's something that I keep on trying to do, even though trying to do things is something that I find hard. But that's, that's something I'm aware of. I think that that is a really good goal for next year. And it's exciting to even talk about a second year of the Lifefulness podcast. I cannot believe it has been a whole year of doing this. And I think uh, it speaks a lot to your commitment to the project, Sanson, and, and your connections with many of the most interesting people in the whole world. Oh, thanks, mate. Well, look, and above all, we haven't really done this. Thanks to the listeners. It is wonderful to have you no, guys on board. <laughs> That's how you do it, James. Uh, and uh, yeah, we uh, have a wonderful, loyal uh, listenership, and we just absolutely love bringing you these conversations we could be better at uh, doing other parts of the podcast sharing it on social media other things like that but these conversations are great and we love it when we hear from you we love it that a lot of you are you know uh tucking into this and just silently enjoying it and ruminating on it and we really can't wait to bring you another 64 podcasts how about that oh. Sounds like a lot. We do love it that you listen and silently ruminate. We would love it even more if you listen and then give us a five-star review <laughs> on we, iTunes. And I reckon we've, we're the podcast with the fewest requests for five-star reviews. We never per ask. podcast. We never ask. We never ask. Ask, we never, never ask. Uh, all right, then. Uh, oh, I got to the end and we were talking about the podcast. Uh, but what's also been wonderful is, uh, I'd say, the community, the in-person community, which, uh, or rather the online in-person community, where we gather to talk about the podcast, yeah. has been really fascinating. And it's just been wonderful to go and learn about how to do this and you know how to use these conversations as the leaping off point for uh you know personal connections and it's a really intimate space and james you did the lifefulness 101 which i'd love to have ride again maybe we can do that in january uh and because that was really uh fascinating and uh, yeah i just want to say thanks to all of those uh listeners as well and all to the members of the community uh, you guys are all amazing, and I'm so grateful to have you on the journey. All right, that was the show. It feels a bit weird doing a wrap-up when we uh, were just talking, so we could have wrapped it up then. But uh, to tell you the truth, I listened to the end of it, and it just sounded like I sort of went out on more of a whimper than a bang. And this is definitely bang-worthy. Please go and review the podcast that way. This podcast is bang-worthy. And, yeah... Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to the end. Thanks so much to James Croft. Thanks to all of the guests. Thanks to every single one of our listeners. Thanks so much to every community member. Thanks to Mav Shetty. You're listening to this. I love you. You do such a great job. And thanks to Roman Rapak and Miroshot who made the music that you're listening to right now. <laughs>